The GOAT would have turned 81 today. We celebrate in this hour the life and enduring legacy of Muhammad Ali with my friend Jonathan Ige, journalist, biographer, and best-selling author of Ali, A Life, dubbed by Esquire magazine as one of the 25 greatest biographies of all time. A tribute to the champ, Muhammad Ali, in this hour. And I should mention before I get started, uh, you all know that uh, I regard uh, uh, Dr. King as the greatest American this country's ever produced. That's my assessment. Uh, his book, King, A Life, drops on May 16th of this year. And I can't wait. Uh, as one who has studied Dr. King and written my own uh, book about the last year of his life, I can't wait to read Jonathan Ige's book, King, A Life, which drops again on May 16th of this year. Jonathan Ige, it's been far too long, my friend. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Travis. Thank you so much. It's nice to talk to you again. It's nice to hear your voice again. Thank you for the opportunity. Glad we got the hour to talk about the champ. Um, let, let me start with this. Um, Ali said in that clip um, a moment ago that he was always curious, and indeed he was. As you know, um, I got to know the champ pretty well and hung out with the champ and traveled with the champ and interviewed the champ a number of times and considered Ali a friend um, over the course of his life, and I, I still miss him dearly. Uh, and I saw that up close um, in our own relationship. He was always curious. Here I was trying to ask him questions, and he was always posing questions to me. He was a curious person all throughout his life. Situate his curiosity, if you will, inside of his legacy. Wow, that's a great question that nobody's ever asked me before. And I love that you think of him as curious because, you know, so many people, when they get big, they only think about themselves. And Ali certainly had a plenty big ego, but he always was curious about the people around him and the world around him, and he wanted to learn more. I think that's why he explored new religions, why he, um, you know, refused to put in, be put into any political categories. Um, he was always asking questions and, and learning magic tricks, learning um, about various religions, not just Islam. I think, um, and that's partly what made him such a great fighter, too, is he didn't do the things the way he was taught to do them. He did them the way that, that, that he found best for him. He never, you know, w would be pigeonholed. He would never be put in any kind of a category. And I think that's a, that's a big part of why he's the GOAT. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of a curiosity, um, he was curious, but he was also uh, sort of renaissance. Ali tried a little bit of everything, as you know, Jonathan. Uh, we started this hour, in case you didn't know, that song, Stand By Me, uh, was Muhammad Ali singing. That was Ali's version. He went into the studio one day. He loved that song, went into the studio one day, and he recorded his version of Stand By Me. Uh, I raised that uh, for those who didn't know that that was the voice of Muhammad Ali, number one. But number two, I raised it, uh, Jonathan, because... Um, there was something about him, and it came through in every fiber of his being, um, that never made him feel like there was any place in the world that he did not belong. Um, uh, a great writer once said that because I am human, nothing human is alien to me. Uh, and Ali seemed to take that to heart, did he not? Oh, my God, yeah. He, he felt a connection with everybody. He felt like everybody was going to love him no matter where he went. He used to talk about how he could be dropped out of a plane anywhere on the planet, and he could walk to the nearest hut and the nearest igloo, wherever it was, and, um, and they would welcome him and they would love him. And not just because he was famous, but because he had that charm, that personality, and he, he just genuinely loved people. I think he loved all people, even, even the reporters who were covering him and even the businessmen who took advantage of him. He forgave them over and over again. He just kept coming back to the people he loved and giving them another chance. And, uh, you know, it got him in trouble sometimes. It cost him a lot of money. Um, uh, he was married four times in part for that reason. He just, he just loved everybody and gave everybody the benefit of the doubt. 
Yep. Um, let me ask, since you went there, how did Ali, to your read, to your research, Jonathan, become such a citizen of the world? To your point, he was at one point the most popular person in the world. Uh, no doubt about that. Uh, but I'm not talking about his just his, just his popularity right now. I'm, I'm, I'm getting at something deeper. and you, you, you know what I'm getting at here. How did he become a citizen of the world? How is it that Ali really could be welcomed any place in the world? Well, I think it starts with the fact that he's willing to stand up to power. He's willing mm. to show that, he, that he's going to do what he wants to do. So he's going to fight integration. And then he's going to join the Nation of Islam, and he's going to be criticized for being anti-American, for being adopting this religion that seemed like a terrorist group to some, to some other people. And he's not going to care about that. So first of all, that sends the message that, that, that he's, he's open-minded. And then when the American government starts picking on him, um, and he stands up to the American government when he refuses to fight in Vietnam. Then people all over the world say, this man is brave. This man has the courage to stand up for his convictions. And people who have nothing to do with boxing, who don't know anything about civil rights struggle in America, people in the remotest corners of the world see this man as, a, as someone who believes in freedom. And, and, and that just changes everything. That makes him... Um, almost a religious figure for some people. Yeah. Um, there's so much to talk about. Um, you can't do justice uh, to the life of Ali in an hour. Um, Jonathan I wrote a very dense text, and he couldn't do justice to Ali uh, with all the time he spent on this book. I mean, it is it is a life well-lived, and again, you could spend y years just dissecting uh, the life and legacy and the meaning uh, of the life that Ali uh, left uh, behind. Uh, but I want to do uh, as much damage as we can in this hour, trying to unpack the legacy of the GOAT on what would have been his 81st birthday. When we come forward, I want to go right to uh, Vietnam. We talked about Ali raised his name yesterday in conversation um, as we celebrated uh, Dr. King and uh, the King holiday. And um, King and Ali were simpatico. Um, I write about this in one chapter of my book, uh, The Occasion that King and Ali had to talk about their stance on the war in Vietnam. King obviously vehemently opposed to it. Ali refused to go and fight, lost his title as a result, as you all know. Uh, but I want to unpack that particular piece with Jonathan Ig when we come forward, and so much more to get to in this hour as we celebrate the birthday of the greatest of all time, Muhammad Ali on KBLA Talk 15. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now, It does indeed with our guest in this hour, Jonathan Ig, author of the book Ali, A Life, uh, dubbed by Esquire Magazine, one of the 25 greatest biographies of all time. Uh, and it is a good one. I couldn't wait to get into it when Jonathan released it. And I, I tore through that thing, learning as much as I could about Muhammad Ali. Uh, his book, King, A Life, drops later this year, May 16th, 2023. Uh, I'm waiting with bated breath for that one. Uh, but today we celebrate uh, what would have been the 81st birthday of the greatest of all time, Muhammad Ali, here on KBLA Talk 1580. Let me go straight to Vietnam, Jonathan. Um, again, we raised his name yesterday in our celebration and tribute to um, uh, Dr. King. And as you know, uh, Ali famously said, as only Ali could say, you keep asking me, no matter how long, about the war in Vietnam, I sing this song, Ain't No Viet Cong ever called me nigga. Uh, and he repeated that line time and time again. Uh, but his stance, uh, refusing to go uh, fight in the war in Vietnam, is what I love about Ali so much. I mean, as great as he was in the ring, for me, it was his courage, his conviction, 
his commitment and his character that we saw um, so clearly when he refused to fight in that war in Vietnam, that makes him the goat for me. But what say you about uh, the drama and the trouble that Ali got himself in by refusing to fight in the Vietnam War? I agree with you completely, Tavis. I don't think we'd be talking about him today if it hadn't been for his stance against the war. He's a great boxer, but it's that stance against the war that made him a great hero and a great rebel in, in the true um, sense of, of American history, um, of a country born of rebellion. Ali is on the list of uh, our great rebels because he came out against the Vietnam War when it was still popular. He came out before Dr. King really came out in a, in a big way against the war, and he risked everything for that. And and when that quote that you gave, when he said, um, you know, he had nothing against the Viet Cong, um, th- I love that because it's part of his evolution. He starts out saying, this is a racial thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, why would I want to go fight some people who have dark skin for a country that isn't even treating me right? Why would I want to go over there and kill some people for this country? And then he begins to say, well, you know what? Look at all the black soldiers that are dying over there. So he's learning about this as he goes along. Why, why are we sending more black people over there than white people to die dis- disproportionate numbers? And then he begins thinking about it in terms of his religion. Uh, it's against my religion um, to, to fight in the war. So he, you know, he ends up making the argument before the Supreme Court on the grounds of a conscientious objector. But he's got all kinds of moral issues with this, and he's taking it on in all of those capacities. And, and that's just that's heroic. Yeah, it is heroic. Um, what was that period like? And I'm fascinated by this particular phase of his life because, uh, as is true of all of us. Uh, and was certainly true of Ali and certainly true of King, you don't really know who you are until you have to navigate your way through the darkest hours of your life, the darkest periods of your life. And that is when you learn who you are, and you also learn who your friends really are. Um, But Ali had to go through a period of time, of course, where they denied him the opportunity to do what he did so well, and that is to fight inside of the ring. And yet it didn't stop him from talking. It didn't stop his work. It didn't stop his witness. It didn't stop his public appearances. It only stopped him inside the ring, but his life moved forward. But when they take away the thing that you were born to do, the thing that you are the best at, uh, that's a lot to wrestle with. That's a lot to deal with. Talk to me about how Ali navigated that period of years when he couldn't do what he did so well. Well, remember, his, his white business managers came to him and said, you're making a big mistake. You're giving up millions of dollars. You're, you're flushing your career down the toilet. And he said he didn't care. Um, he, would, he would go before a firing squad before he betrayed his principles, before he betrayed his religion. And I think it's important to remember that he didn't know he was going to be banned from boxing for three and a half years. He thought he might be banned forever. He thought his career might be over. He thought he might go to jail for five years and never be allowed to box again. And he was prepared to make that sacrifice. That is true commitment. And when people ask me, um, did Ali really believe? Did he really believe in Allah? Did he really believe in the nation of Islam? Oh, yeah. You know, you don't make that kind of commitment, that kind of sacrifice, if you don't really believe. Yeah. How would you, um, and I'm not, I'm not trying to bash anybody today, um, but I've, I've discussed this any number of times uh, publicly and privately, and you and I have talked about it. Um, but, but how would you, um, trying to find the right word here, um, his stance, uh, not fighting in the Vietnam War, as you just described, got him in a great deal of trouble. How would you situate his courage as an athlete then with athletes today? And I ask that because I can't imagine, I can't imagine an athlete today at the top of his or her game would take such a principled stance when they felt or thought that it might mean the end of their career. 
And you got all these business managers, white and others, in your ear, in your face, telling you you're about to destroy your career. I can't think of a single athlete right now who I believe at the top of his or her game would risk it all on principle. That's just me. What say you? Well, I hope that there are some out there who have that kind of conviction and that kind of belief, but I agree with you. It's hard to picture. And, you know, let's give some credit. You know, um, we have seen some great acts of courage from um, players after George Floyd's murder. We saw NBA players refusing to take the court, um, but they weren't giving up their entire careers. They were were standing up for something important, and they were willing to sacrifice, and they were willing to to make their voices heard. But it's another story when somebody says, you're done. You're never going to play again if you do this. And I guess the question would be, you know, for an athlete who truly believes, what do you believe in enough that you'd be willing to, to, to sacrifice everything? What, yeah. what matters to you that much? Yep. And that, that takes us back to King. We, I keep weaving between Ali and King, given that you know, his birthday is today and Ali's birthday was on Sunday and the holiday was yesterday. Uh, Ali, uh, I mean, King rather famously said, a man who has not found something for which he's willing to die is not fit to live. That was uh Dr. King's assessment. Um, So much has been said uh, and written about Colin Kaepernick as the closest example to Ali in modern times. I see it differently with all due respect to Colin Kaepernick, but I I know you've thought about this having written this book, Ali, A Life, and uh, spent so much time delving into uh, his legacy. Uh, When you hear Colin Kaepernick or hear comparisons made between Ali and Kaepernick, how do you process that? Well, first of all, it's, it's it's sad that we're still having these arguments where black athletes are being criticized for speaking out politically. So in that way, there's a connection, a direct line from Ali to Kaepernick, and it's not a good line. It's a line of, of, of uh, it's a line built on racism that um, we expect our athletes to shut up and dribble, shut up mm-hmm. and throw the ball, and yep. not express their political views. But you can't compare Kaepernick to Ali because Kaepernick um, you know, suffered for his for his stance, but Ali gave up his entire career. He was, he was the most popular, most, uh, the highest paid athlete in America. And he was willing to give it all up for his, for his beliefs. And, and that's, there's nothing else like that. Yep. No, there is nothing like it. Um, let me pivot to his, um, his, his, his Muslim, his Muslim faith. Um, I'm not sure what annoyed Americans, uh, more, many Americans more that he wouldn't fight, in the war in Vietnam, or that he changed his name from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali and became a member uh, of the Nation of Islam. Uh, but just talk to me, and, 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 I'm, and I'm asking this question now because and this, this is why it's worth, you know, digging into, um, you know, people's lives and legacies even after they're gone because there's still so much to learn from their, their stories. Um, I'm thinking now about the ways in which we are still wrestling with the maltreatment of Muslims in this country in 2023, uh, here we are in 2023, and if you are uh, Muslim, you're wearing a hijab. You're, you know, there, there, you know, there, there are any number uh, of uh, things we could point to that make it abundantly clear that those persons who practice this, this particular faith in this country are still put upon in a variety of ways. Say nothing about the ways that they are demeaned and uh, uh, stigmatized and framed by Hollywood. That's another conversation. But this is 2023 when those who practice the Muslim faith are still uh, maltreated. Ali is way back in the day. <laughs> and I, 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 it just, it, just um, it, it, it moves me when I think about um, what he had to endure 
because he changed his his faith. That's his choice, not a choice that I would have made. He and I had many discussions about that. Um, but what uh, what say you uh, about what he had to endure when he made that particular decision? Yeah, I think it was um, compounded by the fact, first of all, that he's black. So there's already a lot of um, cynicism about him and a lot of skepticism. And uh, a lot of people think that he's not fitted. Be fit, it's not he's not a, an appropriate champion because he's a loudmouth black guy. And then you go and you join this um, new religion that people here don't really understand. And on top of that, a lot of people in America think of the nation of Islam as being not even a legitimate Muslim organization. They think of it as being a hate cult. And the FBI describes it as such. They believe that, that it's an anti-American terrorist organization. So he's got at least a triple, maybe a quadruple whammy of prejudice coming at him. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what did you learn when you, when, you, uh, when you spent so much time working on this book, Ali, A Life, Jonathan, about how he developed um, such a Teflon exterior? I mean, he's human. He's not human and divine. He has a heart. I know he he hurts. I know he bleeds like all the rest of us. But what did you learn about how he developed such a tough exterior? Well, he grew up um, in in a you know a tough family with a father who was sometimes um, abusive, and and that gave him a thick skin. But boxing also gave him this sense of of being a, 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 almost like a superhero. You know, he had this preternatural gift. He had this unbelievable talent for the sport, and then he worked his tail off to really hone his talents and to become not just uh, excellent, but the best. And that gave him a kind of swagger that, you know, you and I can't imagine. I got to spend a little time with Ali, and I spent a little time with George Foreman and Larry Holmes. And you meet these guys, and you see that being a champion at that level, being the heavyweight champ, gives you a kind of swagger that nothing else in the world can compare to. I don't think an ex-president of the United States has the same kind of swagger that an ex-heavyweight champ has. And when Ali was walking the earth, um, even as an older man, he never forgot that he was the greatest. I think he just carried that deep within him. And, you know, as Dick Gregory said to me, um, for a black man born the same age, the same time as Emmett Till, to think of himself as the greatest and to call himself the greatest, that took some some very large <laughs> um, confidence. Let's yeah. put it that way. Yeah, we'll put it that way. Yeah. Um, this notion of standing up to power. Um, it's one thing to have confidence in your ability, have confidence in your skill. It's quite another to stand up to power, uh, the, the U.S. government of all entities or people. Um, talk to me about, about that drive, that, that, uh, that part of his DNA. Yeah, I think that's where things get really um, extraordinary. And the same thing is true for Dr. King. When you're willing to risk your status, when you're willing to risk your career, when you have this kind of access, this kind of power, this kind of celebrity, and you're willing to throw it all away, stand up for your beliefs against the government against the president of the United States, against the the, you know, the the system, the economic system that has made you rich and famous, um, that is 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 something really rare. I can't think of too many people who have that kind of courage, who are willing to put their beliefs, their morals, their ethics, their values above all else. Nope, it's a powerful point. Powerful point. King stood up to the government and they killed him. Ali stood up to the government and they stripped him of his um, his uh, his livelihood. Um, both are heroes in my eyes. Uh, we celebrated Dr. King yesterday. We're celebrating Muhammad Ali today on what would have been his 81st birthday. Um, no one has written better about Ali than Jonathan Icke. His book is called, his best-selling book is called Ali, A Life. We'll continue with Jonathan Icke in celebration of Muhammad Ali when we come forward after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk. Less BS per broadcast. Fewer microaggressions per megawatt. KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. Glad to have you with us in this hour. Our guest is Jonathan Igg. Uh, he 
is a great journalist, a biographer, best-selling author of Ali, A Life. And in this hour, we are celebrating the life and legacy of the greatest of all time. The GOAT uh, would have turned 81 uh, were he here today. And we are celebrating all things Muhammad Ali in this hour. Let me pivot for just a second, Jonathan. I mentioned earlier in the show that uh, your book, King, A Life, if I have it correct, comes out on May 16, 2023. I can't wait for that one. You love taking on these bigger than, <laughs> these bigger than life subjects, man. Uh, and I'm always fascinated by your work because you you are unafraid, like like Ali, you are unafraid to enter these spaces where others have already uh, 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 trodden, a tread, uh, and you will take on these topics again that others have written about. So much has been written about Ali. Didn't stop you from writing Ali a life, and again, some regard it as the, perhaps the best biography about Ali and one of the best biographies of all time. Now you're stepping into uh, the King space. So much written about King already, but your book, again, King of Life, comes out later this year. I'm just curious why you love taking on these huge subjects, man, these huge um, individuals. <laughs> well, thanks, Tavis. I appreciate that, and I appreciate the challenge. You know, you did a fine book, a wonderful book on Dr. King, and that was one of the reasons that I thought about doing a book on King, because so much of what we read is academic, so much of it is arguing politics, and your book really humanized him for, for me in a way that a lot of other books didn't. And then I thought, when was the last time anybody wrote a full biography of King? And nobody had written a full biography of Ali either. There were these great books, but I want, the, I want to know the whole life story. I want to know where they came from, what made them special. I want to know what their struggles were, what, what were their dark moments. Um, and, and that kind of humanizing, we tend to turn these guys, Ali and King and other people, uh, we turn them into these mythological figures. We turn mm. them into monuments and national holidays, and we forget that they were men, that they were women, that they had feelings, that they struggled. Mm. And I think we need to remember that they were human, or else how can we ever hope to emulate them? Yep. Let me ask you two questions about Ali and King. Um, whether or not uh, King, I mean, King, of course, you did not meet. Ali, you spent some time with. Uh, but whether or not when you spend that much time with these two guys, they have measured up for you. Uh, let me put it another way. Are they to your mind as advertised Ali and King? I think they're both greater than I, and I had a high opinion of them going in and I agree with you that, that King is the greatest American we've produced. Um, but I, my opinion of them came out more um, lofty, more um, enhanced my, I think they're greater than ever, and I've examined them down to the nubs. I know that Dr. King bit his fingernails. I know what brand mm -hmm. of cigarettes he smoked, mm -hmm. and I think they're. And I know his flaws too. I know, um, you know, that that he was not a perfect man. But I believe that that they were greater heroes than we even give them credit for today. And I hope that when people get the full story, that they will appreciate these these figures even more. Yeah, I think I think this statement is true of both. I typically use it use it in reference to Dr. King, but I think it's true of Ali as well, that they were public servants, not perfect servants. They were public servants, but not perfect servants. Uh, I'm just curious, though, what what's been and I'll wait for the book. But what's been your takeaway uh, of King when you got into this and learned more about him than you knew prior to? Um, what, what's what's overall what's your what's your read of MLK um, 55 years after his assassination? Well, I think he was not only more radical, but more courageous than we even knew. And that we, we tend to soften his image over the years. We talk about, I have a dream, and yeah. we talk about the content of our character. But he was calling out racism in the North all along. It wasn't just the South. He was calling out materialism. He was calling out militarism all along. And people say, well, he got more radical toward the end. He got more like Malcolm toward the end. I say, no, he was more radical all along, but he just 
was more outspoken and, and more able um, to be heard on those issues. People were willing to listen more as he as he reached the end. Um, and you document that so well in your book. Um, but the other thing that I think comes off that one of the big things my takeaways on King is that we did not fully appreciate just how aggressively the United States government worked to destroy him and how directly that contributed to his death. I don't think I've got new information, new FBI documents that reveal just how aggressively they were out to get him. And it, it's it's heartbreaking. No, nope, that's why I can't wait to read your text. That's the what you, you put your finger right now on the thing I'm anxious to get to, because every time every so many years they release um, the FBI, the, 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 the National Archives release more documents about Ali. They release more documents about Dr. King. So if you, re- if you wrote a book about King like I did some years ago, well, they've released more documents since then. So Jonathan and I gets a chance to see stuff that I didn't get a chance to see when I did my text. And my book just focused on his last year anyway. Jonathan is a bi- Jonathan's book is a biography of King, which, again, I can't wait to read. But Jonathan has had access to other documents that I never saw. Uh, but to his point, uh, which doesn't surprise me at all, uh, that the government worked assiduously to destroy um, Dr. King. And so, again, I'll, I'll, I'll pause on that for the moment, but I can't wait, excuse me, until May 16th of this year uh, when that book drops. And I'll have you back, of course. You better come back, Jonathan, and talk about that book, man. Uh, I promise. And I'm going to send you a copy of before May 16th. I'll give you an early one. I appreciate that, man. I can't wait to delve into that to see what you've learned about Dr. King. So we'll uh, we'll celebrate uh, that book when it drops uh, again later this year. Back to Muhammad Ali, though. I was I was uh, in conversation with the champ one time. I, think I, I may have told you this. I don't know. I may have told you. I was talking to him one day, and I, I, I wanted to hear from him, Jonathan Ali, why it is that he thought he was so beloved the world over. I said, Champ, tell me, why, why do you think that you are so beloved around the globe? And Ali, you know, did what he did. He, you know, started joking and, you know, making comments here and there, and we laughed about it for a second. I said, but no, Champ, I'm really serious. I want to know from you why you think you have been so beloved, so regarded, so celebrated around the globe. And then he paused and he got serious and he looked at me and he said, Tavis, I guess it's because like me or loathe me, love me or hate me. I've never lied to the American people. He said, and my advice to you in your career is whatever you do, don't ever lie to the American people. Just be who you are. They may like you. They may hate you, but don't lie to people. Be as advertised. And then he said, I've lived long enough now to realize one thing. If I don't know anything else, I know this, that the one thing that the American, uh, the American people, uh, the champ said to me, can tolerate anything. The American people, Tabas, can handle anything. The one thing they cannot handle is hypocrisy. And I, I, I think about that all the time, Jonathan. I think of all kinds of figures in the public eye who have been up and gone down. Um, some bounce back. Um, but when you get caught being a hypocrite, it is that hypocrisy uh, that can ruin your career. And I've, I've thought of your life, uh, your livelihood. I've thought about that so much. But what do you make? What do you make of Ali saying that he never lied to the American people and his point about just don't be a hypocrite, be who you are? I think Ali made an art of that kind of honesty and being himself and letting the world see his flaws. And I'll, I'll say two things about that. First of all, um, I think about the great quote from Thelonious Monk, who said that the true genius is the one who's most like himself. Mm. Mm-hmm. Ali knew who he was, and he never tried to, to, to hide it or change it. He, he was just, he put himself out there for everyone. But you know when I think Ali began to be embraced and loved by Americans? 
um, because he was sure hated, um, loathed by most Americans. Uh, but I think that changed when he got knocked down by Joe Frazier in the first fight, 1971, Madison Square Garden. Wow. I think when he got up from that left hook, suddenly Americans began, Americans who, who didn't really like, um, didn't respect him for his stand against the war, suddenly they said, that's a tough mother. Like, I, who gets up from a punch like that and finishes the fight? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's when people began to think, wow, this guy took the American government's, he took the, he took, um, the, the American government's best punch, and he got up and kept fighting. He took that punch from Joe Frazier. He got up and kept fighting. How can you? How can you not respect somebody like that? Yeah. How How do you think our view? Um, and that's a, it's a broad, you know, general question, which which isn't the best thing to do on radio or any interview, uh, to be so so broad. Um, but um, since we're talking about how we think the American people viewed him. How do you think our view of Ali changed once we saw him uh, wrestling publicly with Parkinson's? Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, the, the writer Stanley Crouch used to say that Ali in the 60s was a grizzly bear. He was just fierce and dangerous. And by the 70s, he was like a circus bear. And then in the 80s and 90s, when we saw him hobbled by Parkinson's, he became like a teddy bear. Mm. We just wanted to hug him. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I want. I hope people remember that he was the grizzly bear and and. and don't, you know, it's easy to forget about that sometimes. No, you're right. And uh, I'm just, I'm smiling because uh, Stanley Crouch could turn a phrase like nobody I know, Jonathan. I, you, oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> you got me thinking of all the conversations I've had with Stanley Crouch over the years. God rest his soul. But um, Stanley is um, was a, an amazing writer. And, again, I don't know anybody that could turn a phrase like Stanley Crouch could. So I'm, I'm just thanking you for even raising the name Stanley Crouch in this conversation. When we come forward, more of our conversation with Jonathan Ig as we celebrate the GOAT who would have turned 81 today. Jonathan's book, his best-selling text about the life of Ali, is called just that, Ali, A Life. More about uh, the champ when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. This is KBLA Talk 1580, where hate loses and love wins. Jonathan, I, this question might sound oversimplistic, uh, not the first or last question I'll ask that might sound <laughs> sort of elementary, but it's something I've wrestled with for years uh, vis-a-vis Ali, and I'm curious as to get your take on this. I've never heard you opine on this, at least not in our conversations. And that is for a guy who was so concerned about his image, for a guy whose ego was bigger than bigger than life, no question about that, for a guy who was the GOAT, um, the, the greatest of all time, um, what have you figured out or what have you reasoned or, or rationalized with regard to why he stayed in the ring for so long to get pummeled the way he did near the end? Well, I think you put your finger on it. Some of it's the ego. You know, he, he needs that attention. He needed that attention when he was a baby in a stroller and he would stand up and scream. Um, I think he just loved the attention. And where else can you get that kind of attention um, you know, he, that's why he never wanted to play any other sports. He wanted only one spotlight, only one person in that spotlight. And then uh, on top of that, he needed the money, unfortunately. You know, he never took care of his money properly. He was not taken care of well by his managers. And then he had, you know, uh, four marriages. So he, he was always fighting in part because he he needed a quick payday. Um, and that's a shame because he knew that it was doing damage to him. And, you know, like a lot of football players today, they think that somehow they're going to escape, that it won't really be that bad or that it won't hit them the way it hit other people. And, you know, that doesn't work out too well most of the time. And, it, you know, it didn't work out too well for Ali. And even while he was still fighting, he was beginning to slur his words and you could see him slowing down and, and, and you could see the, that, that incredible mind starting to slow down. And that, that's one of the great tragedies of his life, that he boxed too long. 
Yeah. Um, how was Ali regarded uh, in real time by other great athletes? I'm thinking of that great photo that we all know uh, with he and Bill Russell and Jim Brown and uh, Ali, I mean, uh, uh, Abdul-Jabbar, all these great athletes at the time at this press conference. I love that photo because in that photo, man, you've got the best of the best, right? <laughs> you know the photo I'm talking about, of course. It is, oh, yeah. It's the best of the best in that one photo. But, 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 but in, in, in real time, how was Ali regarded by other great athletes? You know, I think even at the time of that meeting, a lot of them, I talked to about six or seven guys who were in that meeting, um, they came in skeptically. They thought that he was a loudmouth. They weren't really sure that this religion was 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 legit. Um, and some of them were former veterans. You know, were were, were veterans of, of military who thought that he was wrong in his stance against Vietnam. But what's interesting about that meeting is that even those people who came in skeptical left um, completely convinced that he was that he was um, true to his word, that he was sincere in his religious beliefs, and they were impressed by his willingness to sacrifice. So I think, you know, even before the Vietnam stuff, there's a lot of skepticism about Ali. He's seen as a loudmouth, and certainly um, among the white media, um, loudmouth black man was not a very um, popular formula. So he was seen as an upstart. The word uppity was used quite a bit, and 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 he had to convince a lot of folks that that he was that he knew what he was doing, and and that he was that he was not just a you know a brilliant athlete. He was a brilliant man too. Yeah. When we come forward in our many moments with Jonathan Igg, author of Ali, A Life, uh, one of the best biographies of all time, author of King, A Life, dropping later this year, May 16th, 2023. Um, I want to close this conversation where we began. We started this hour playing Ali singing Stand By Me, went into the studio and recorded his own version. Uh, and then we played a clip of Ali where you hear Ali talking about you know, coming back to America after he won this gold medal. Um so we started talking about the gold medal that he won uh, as a fighter. And I want to close uh, uh, with Jonathan Igg uh, getting his impression of that enduring image of Ali uh, at the Olympics in Atlanta when he comes out with Parkinson's shaking like a leaf, but holding that torch and lighting um, uh, the flame uh, at the Atlanta Olympics and uh, get his take on for what I think for many is uh, an enduring image of the courage and uh, uh, the conviction of uh, of this great fighter, Muhammad Ali. We'll close on that note when we come forward with Jonathan Igg on KBLA Talk 1580. Conversations that matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Jonathan Igg on KBLA Talk 1580, author of the best-selling book, Ali, A Life author of the forthcoming book, King, A Life. Jonathan, let me close on uh, this note. we got uh, you know a few minutes left, three or four minutes left in this hour. But uh, again, we started this hour with that clip of Ali talking about what happened when he came home after winning the Olympic gold medal and how he thought he was going to be treated and uh, nothing had changed, even as a gold medalist. I want to close this hour getting your reflections, your thoughts on that moment in Atlanta that the whole world witnessed where we were surprised uh, that the champ walks out from behind that wall uh, holding this torch uh, to light the flame, uh, to kick off the Atlanta Olympics. Uh, everybody remembers that particular moment. Nobody knew that Ali was the one who was going to do it. It surprised the world. Uh, but my sense is that for all the images we have of Ali in our, in our mind's eye, that one is going to be enduring. What say you about that moment? I couldn't agree more, Tavis. And, and 
it's interesting because Ali wasn't sure he wanted to do it. He wasn't sure he wanted the world to see him in that condition. And people hadn't really seen him in a while. And I think that's why when he steps out there on that, on that podium with that torch in his hand, you hear a gasp from the crowd, you know, tens of thousands of people. And it's there's this moment of pause where, oh, my God, it's Ali. And then they start chanting his name, Ali, Ali, Ali. And he, he struggles to get the, the flame lit. And he, it looks for a while like he might need help. And, and, and I think that what's so beautiful about that is that he was willing to show his vulnerability. Mm. And he said afterwards, the next day, he told a newspaper reporter, he said, you know, people are going to love me more now because they see I'm human. We all get old. We all die. Everybody knows that if, if it can happen to me, it's going to happen to them, too. And they're going to love me more. And I love that about him. And you probably saw that when you spent time with him. He wasn't afraid to let you see his weakness. No, he was not. And what I love is I'm just I'm smiling because he could read a moment, man. He <laughs> he knew he knew how to create a moment, but he knew how to read it. I mean, the fact that he said that the next day, he knew exactly what he was doing, Jonathan. Oh yeah, he always did. Yep, he knew exactly what he was doing, and he knew how that moment would be read if he could get that torch lit. And thankfully, he got it lit without any help. Uh, and the rest, as they say, is history. And to my point, uh, we will always remember Ali uh, in that scene uh, with so many other images, of course, that run through our mind's eye when we think about Muhammad Ali. Uh, but that one is forever etched in our memories. Jonathan I let me close by saying thank you, thank you, thank you for writing this great book uh, about Ali, a life. Um, when it came out, I, again, I couldn't get to it fast enough. I loved it then. I love it now. And I am uh, just waiting uh, to receive my copy of King, A Life. Again, that book drops May 16, 2023. I'm sure at this point you can probably pre-order it. Uh, and if not, you will be able to in the days to come. Uh, but I would pre-order that one. Uh, if he did uh, uh, with the King book, what he did with the Ali book, uh, you're going to want to read it. So, um, Jonathan, thank you for your great writing. Uh, good to have you on this program today. Have a great rest of the year. And I will talk to you in May when that book drops, my friend. Thank you, Tavis. It's always great to talk to you. I appreciate you. I appreciate you more. Thank you for your time. Happy birthday, Muhammad Ali, the greatest of all time, would have turned 81 years old today. When we come forward in the third and final hour of today's program, you don't want to miss this conversation. I've been anxious uh, to have this conversation, looking forward to it, because um, every one of us eventually has to do that dance with mortality that Jonathan was just referencing uh, the words of um, Ali about a moment ago, but when your life is snatched too soon, um, what happens? Um, do you ever consider uh, how people might view you if you were killed uh, before your time by the police? Would they remember you? Would they regard you? What would happen uh, if you were shot down like a dog as they did Breonna Taylor? We'll talk about what happens when you wrestle with those kinds of questions and what comes out of that with our guest in the next hour. Uh, you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580.